Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and this is the Cosmic Queries edition. And so, Chuck, we've got people who like know all about like space and zero G and levity and gravity. I love it. You love it. You love it. I got Chris Mason, who's a biophysicist responsible for analyzing the data they obtained on the health and well-being of the Inspiration4 crew that recently went into space. Chris Mason, welcome to Star Talk. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you're a biophysicist, professor of physiology and biophysics. Love me some biophysics. At mm-hmm. Cornell University. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hms. Not upstate, because yep. most of your medical stuff is happening right here in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And, That's and right. what's right your address? Concrete. What's your coordinates? Right on uh, York Avenue in 70, so the concrete jungle in Manhattan, right? right. There you go. Hey, there yeah, you. I'm sorry, but that's not really the concrete jungle if you're on York <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Okay. Um, Compared yeah. to Ithaca, New York, it's a concrete jungle. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's okay. the only place you can compare it, yeah. <laughs> so the only reason why we have Chris on the show mm-hmm. is because we have Cyan Proctor on the show mm-hmm. who actually went into space. Cyan, yeah. welcome to Star Talk. Hi, Neil. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. And you're a geoscientist. I've got you here. And a science communicator. We love me some science communicators um, in this world and on this show. And you flew in the SpaceX Dragon capsule, right? I I was a mission pilot. So tell me about it. I was the mission pilot for the SpaceX Dragon capsule. So I I became the first black... Excuse me! Neil, (laughs) I became the first black female pilot of a spacecraft in history. Uh, Nice. So so all the bling you got on there, for those who who can see this by video, there's chevrons on a shoulder, you got wings, you got art, you got everything going on there. You look like an African dictator. (laughs) Well, let me tell you, I came off that capsule dancing, so, and I've been dancing ever since. That's that's Um, tremendous, tremendous. So so tell me about the Inspiration4 mission. What was the the goal um, of that? The goal of the Inspiration4 mission was the first all-civilian mission to orbit, and we went for three days, and our goal was to not only advance human spaceflight, but to raise $200 million for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in the fight against childhood cancer. Ooh, Amazing. Okay. Wow. Damn. I mean, I just thought it was to let a billionaire go to space. I didn't realize. <laughs> I didn't realize there was something worthwhile attached to this no, whole thing. You saw for space. I, I just thought. You I just saw for space. You saw. Yeah, Earth. I thought we were just stroking billionaire <laughs> no. egos. Uh, Solving for space solves for Earth. That's wow. That's, and, and, that's and, really and you guys great. were in orbit. How many orbits did you guys execute? Ooh. Wow. Ooh, that's three days right there. I know how to count my orbits. And we oh went up 575 gosh. kilometers, and, so up there just above Hubble. Oh, wow. Okay, so so Chuck, uh, yeah. just in case you didn't know, there were two digs in that. I just want you to She first said, first civilian crew to go into orbit. <laughs> right. Orbit. Right. Did you catch right. that? Yeah. Okay. Not, not, peek over, not peek over a balcony. Yeah, right. not look over the, the yeah. fence, Yo, you know. Hey, what's going on? <laughs> oh. Hey, guys, what's happening out there? Like, none of that. Oh, wait a minute. We got to fall well, back to as, Earth. Okay. Right. As an astrophysicist, Neil, you know that it takes more energy to go to orbit. So the mechanics are slightly, well, actually vastly greater than suborbital. Plus, mm. you guys need a heat shield to we re-enter. Do. 
And if, if you're just going up and, and falling back, there are no heat shields involved at all. That's correct. Wow. And, and then you said you just went above Hubble, just a little above? <laughs> yes, Hubble was initially inserted into orbit over 600 kilometers, but over time, it's been gravity's been pulling it closer to the Earth. And uh, yeah, we just went further than any human has been since servicing Hubble. Wow. Yeah, so this is this was badass in multiple dimensions there. So what was your role, other than like your pilot, um, what what was being monitored about you that brought Chris into the equation? Oh, Chris just loved to pro poke and prod us. I mean, he <laughs> we were swabbing, we were giving blood, we were um, mm -hmm. using an ultrasound to look at our eyeballs and just all kinds of stuff. Because um, I'll let him tell tell more about that. I was the guinea pig in this. Oh, okay. Wow. I, I, so, Chris, you know, if I were on that, I would say, you ain't touching me. I'm just looking out the window the whole time. Okay. Yeah. No, normally, Chris, the aliens are the ones doing the, this. Poking your body. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, that's all I'm saying. It's like, you know, normally it's not another human. Just like, you know. Chris. But we want, we want to learn just like the aliens do. We want to understand humanity. So, it, and particularly how humans respond to spaceflight. So, we did a, basically a follow-up, uh, not just uh, for Dr. Proctor, but for the whole crew. Of, you know, everything we could really have is a full profile. So uh, blood draws, we looked at, you know, stool, urine, saliva, you know, skin swabs, any biomolecule we could grab that they would consent to, we would grab it. So uh, basically, because we want to understand what happens to the body in space, how do we prepare for, for longer missions? How do we uh, also help plan just for, you know, any other uh, space based medicine as well? You learn a lot when the body goes through these kinds of stressors. Whoa. You had me at stool sample. <laughs> 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 and, and so, uh, Cyan, who else flew with you? Um, my commander, Jared Isaacman. And then we had mission, our mis medical officer, Haley Arsenault. And our Arsenault. Yep. And our mission specialist, Chris Sombrowski. And then myself yeah. as the mission pilot. So there, it was a crew of four, and that's why Inspiration 4. Now, all of you are, are classified as civilians. And so I have a few questions about that. So you, so you come to this also as a science educator. And with, if I remember reading your bio, extensive background in art, correct? That, well, actually, funny enough, I just became an artist during COVID. I needed a way to um, unleash my creativity because traveling and being an explorer as a geoscientist uh, has had been my career. And and this was a during COVID, I found myself pent up with uh, you know nothing to do, and so I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to do invest in art and poetry. And and that's actually how I won my seat to space is as an entrepreneur, oh. an artist, and a poet. Because wow. because I think to myself, you know, there's nothing less poetic than an astronaut from the old days coming back and talking about, you know, you know the right stuff that first went up. They were not poets, right? And so that's I correct. think space, we've been missing a dimension, a, a human dimension of what it is to experience space by having always sent the same kind of people up. And so now you help to sort of broaden what kind of, what kind of brain wiring interprets what's going on in space? And I think that's great. What does a geoscientist see and think looking out the cupola window? Well, you know, when you're looking back on Earth as a geoscientist, you start to think about the geologic features, the big land masses, the bodies of water. You know, we are a water planet. Um, but, but me coming with this artist perspective meant that now I'm seeing this the, the colors, the brightness, the, the different hues of white, because a lot of times you think that it's just uh, one 
one white of a cloud. A lot of times we talk about the different hues of blue that you see from space, but there's just as many variations of white in the clouds. And I found that striking. And then the patterns that the clouds form um, just from an artistic standpoint was stunning. It was all stunning. Mm -hmm. So so let me, so so Chris, is there, uh, was there something in particular you were looking for or were you doing so? Give me everything you got, and I'll and I'll sort it out afterwards. Like what? What was the? What were the? What was the goal set for you? We had some hypotheses, and it's not just my own group, but there's uh, a, a other collaborators working with Trish and other NASA investigators that are all working together on this mission. But we had some hypotheses going in. We actually uh, thought that you know they probably would become more similar. Their their microbes on their skin would start to become more similar as the mission transpired, even only a few days in orbit. And the bacteria and and cells in your skin start to look a little bit more like the people next to you. Uh, We've even seen this with roller derby. If you just sequence the DNA of players before and after a match or a basketball game, there's a transfer of microbes, and so we're calculating exactly Chris, how many. Chris, this is nasty. This is. Just saying. I don't want anybody else's microbes on my body. <laughs> There's a lot no. of what we call foreign object debris floating in microgravity, and so <laughs> everything's well, moving. Well, wait. So, so as I understand this, because I was once tested tested by um, uh, NPR did a, a special on this. Uh, uh, so e- each one of us has our own cocktail of skin microbes. Is that a fair statement mm-hmm. to make? Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. And, and it's unique to us. Might even be more unique than our fingerprints, perhaps, mm-hmm. right? And so now we're all in a capsule together, breathing the same mm-hmm. air, rubbing up against each other, and you're there for days, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're suggesting that the microbiomes of people's bodies might begin to converge. Yes, and I don't think they'll just become one giant organism by the end of the mission. Like, they'll get closer. Closer. Yeah. That's called alien. Hey, you got your biome in my bacteria. Hey, you got bacteria in my biome. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I'm hoping I, I, I rubbed off on Jared then, or his, he rubbed off on me a couple billion dollars. Yeah, no, it's nice. <laughs> you know. So that, that it has literal meaning now. Oh, you rubbed off on me. It's like literally, literally, yes, yes. yes. It, it, it was really interesting to think about this because I had actually worked with Chris's team beforehand, living in the uh, Mars simulation at the High Seas Habitat, collecting um, samples before. So I kind of came in on a, of, uh, with an awareness of what he he had been working on, and and this whole idea of living in that time was four months. I lived in a Mars simulation for four months, investigating food strategies for long duration spaceflight for NASA, but. Mm. Um, Thinking so, Sayan, you just don't like home. Are there problems at home that you want to <laughs> share with us? On this? <laughs> well, send me to Mars, even fake Mars will do. <laughs> but We're here really, for you, Cyan. <laughs> this whole idea, though, of the microbiology and how it changes, and and thinking about when we go off to confined habitats. Um, what does yeah. that mean and how important it is? And I think as a crew, we all thought that this was really important to do because. Um, you know, advancing human spaceflight means advancing the science that comes along with that. Right. Yeah, if you don't do that, what are, what are you doing? They're just joyrides at that, on that level. Uh, very cool. Well, the whole point of this program is to get questions 
from our Patreon supporters. Because this is Do a, we have to? No, you want Chuck. This is really very interesting. You're not hogging the questions, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to I don't want to like kill this vibe with like questions from regular people. No, I'm just I'm joking, people. We love you. <laughs> if a comedian has to say, I'm joking, what does that mean? Uh-oh. No. Stop it, Neil. What are you doing to me? <laughs> when we come back. You're going to get me killed on Twitter. <laughs> when we come back, Chuck has collected questions from our supporters. And it's we're really here to, to find out what they want to know about your trip in space. What star fucker. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Hi, I'm Chris Cohen from Haworth, New Jersey, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Please enjoy this episode of Star Talk Radio with your and my favorite personal astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're back, Star Talk, Cosmic Queries. I got Chris Mason with me and Cyan Proctor. Two, Chris is a medical uh, a professional studying physiological changes that may or may not have happened in the Inspiration4 crew that included Cyan Proctor, who's with us here and now. And this is a Cosmic Queries edition. But just before we go to the queries, Chuck, um, yeah. uh, did, did you guys pack a suitcase? Like, what, <laughs> what, what happened? I, when I saw you guys boarding, I don't remember y'all carrying, you know, a bellhop and a, and a roller and a rollerboard. So, <laughs> so what... what what happened there? Well, you know, traditionally, NASA astronauts have gotten a very small amount of allotments that they can take to space with us. SpaceX said, you can take a duffel bag. 
Now, you can imagine my eyes getting big at the thought of, I can pack a duffel bag? Well, I packed that thing so tight. I brought everything I could include, you know, think of from my childhood, my friends, my family, uh, strangers off the street. I was getting everything <laughs> bringing it to space. <laughs> and so what do you do? You bring it back to them and you're like, this has now been to space? Is that yes. the idea? Yes. Uh, that's I, I took. cool. I took uh, wedding rings. I took pictures. I took a friend of mine who was a uh, flight attendant. Yeah. Her wings. Uh, I oh, took. Oh, I thought you, um, you, I thought you took jewelry. the flight attendant. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I took a friend of mine's <laughs> wings. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I also took things like comic books from when I was a kid. I had Star Wars comic books, and wow. um, I, I had trading cards. Uh, I took uh, Star Wars and Star Trek with me in some form, and so okay, a bit of culture. Really yeah, and then my yeah, dad's Neil Armstrong autograph that he got when he was working for the NASA tracking station on Guam during oh, the no, 70s. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yep, and then my art yeah. supplies to paint with and to draw with. What what did you what did you paint in space? What did you draw? I drew a dragon. Did you drew trees that, and and you know, brooks and waterfalls. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I have a kind of um, a art style I call Afro Gaia. Um, you know, like Mother Earth, but from an Afro futuristic futurism standpoint. And so I drew this beautiful Afro Gaia um, picture with the dragon capsule above it. And so, yeah, really cool stuff. Okay, that's cool. And I painted, right. painted in space. All right. That's pretty cool. All right. Yeah, I would have just had a, I would just got a black, um, I mean, a, a, a white canvas, painted it all black and been like, space. <laughs> the final frontier. <laughs> Yeah, that's why we didn't send you, Chuck. <laughs> Excellent. You keep providing evidence for why you didn't why go. I there you go. All right. So, Chuck, give us some questions. What, what have you lined up here? All right. Let's jump into it here. This is Kerry Gallagher who says, hello, Dr. Proctor, Dr. Mason, Dr. Tyson, and Lord Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> is, that like, is that like Baltimore? He who shall not be named. Which did, did she really call you Lord? She lo she called me Lord. You don't remember I mean, that? We one episode. To, we had one episode with the general. Uh, yeah. Who I made a joke, and somehow this is stuck all over. We had an uh, Air Force general media. address Chuck as Lord because we all had titles. <laughs> And he invented everybody the title. Had a title but me. And now everybody's calling Chuck Lord. Okay, fine. <laughs> I love it. Fine. Okay, here we go. She says, my name is Scarlett and I am 10 years old and I love science. I want to say, Dr. Proctor, I watched the special with my mom and you were set back in your astronaut career. What made you persevere? I want to be a scientist and my mom says I can do anything. Also, what was your favorite part and what experiments did you perform? Ooh. Hashtag girl power. Oh, okay. wow. There is cool. a lot there and perseverance. There's a lot. <laughs> I always say preparation and perseverance um, make you ready for opportunity. And what I mean by that is that um, my preparation through my education, through but whether it's formal or informal, uh, becoming an explorer, but then also pers uh, perseverance. Um, persistence. And so in 2009, I was a finalist for the NASA astronaut selection process, got to the yes, no, and it was a no. And, and you're like, oh, you're kind of devastated. Um, but then figuring out 
ways to persevere and persist by moving forward. I became an analog astronaut. Uh, and I thought if I can't be advancing human spaceflight up in the stars, I will do it here on Earth. And, and, then, and then when the opportunity for Inspiration 4 came along, I had that you know, preparation and pers uh, perseverance, persistence to be able to take advantage of that opportunity. And so I think, um, and as a result of that, my favorite moment was looking, opening up the cupola for the first time and seeing our planet from space. It was transformative. Wow, that's cool. And, and so, so to, to, in summary, what you're saying is, that, um, well, I don't want to generalize, but I, I think I can accurately, that many people who succeed in life, that's all you end up paying attention to, but you park the curtains, and there were failures back there. And often the people who do succeed are the ones who recovered from their failures, did something different, did something better, continued to advance, and then you see them at the end, and they're the parade, and the paper articles, and the, and, and the magazines. But in fact, um, there no achievement really ever occurs without some kind of struggle. Is that a fair hmm. sort of characterization of what you said? Absolutely. And and I look back when I got that call saying I was going to be the mission pilot for Inspiration 4 that I'd won the seat. Um, I, my whole life came into focus and I was like, wow, all of that preparation from just like your mom, Scarlett, is telling you that you can do anything. My dad told me that I can do anything. And he always instilled that that um, drive in me that the world was waiting. Just uh, follow my passion. And, and so I look back and I think of all of the little steps that I had and some of them were to the side and some of them were a step back, but most of them were moving forward in some way. And, and that's led me to this opportunity and this moment. I like the, I wow. like the analog to steps. That's beautiful. Yeah, this, yeah. One step See, that's, back, now two I, step I, forward. There you go. Yes, right? yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And now I know what giant, my problem is. And one giant uh, leap for humankind. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Chuck. Yeah, see, my parents said, uh, you know, not you can do anything. They went, let's be honest, you can do a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> let's not get crazy. Okay. Can't say you, not going to say you can do anything. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, uh, this is Josh Weiner who says, hello, everybody. Josh from Huntington, West Virginia here, currently a second year medical student at Marshall University. We're in the pulmonary lungs right now, and we've learned about ventilation perfusion ratio of the lungs changes as you move down the lungs because, well, you guessed it, gravity in space travel. Does removing the factor of gravity uh, change the ventilation perfusion ratios in different sections of the lungs and have any serious consequences on normal physiology? Oh, Boom! Oh. Mic I'm drop. Gonna I'm going to let Chris, Chris can take that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, 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 stay on. Here's how you do that. Say, I could answer that, but it's so simple. I'll give it to Chris. <laughs> That's, yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, I, short answer, yes. It, it, it does change when you're in flight. We have not actually, though, taken out human lungs after a space flight, though, to really dissect them, because when they get back to Earth, the astronauts are still using their lungs. Um, so that, that hasn't <laughs> oh, happened yeah, for a full deep dive. But for mice, we have seen this. Uh, when they get back, some of the mice have been dissected in space, and uh, most of them, though, as soon as they land, uh, we get dissections of mice, including the lungs. And you can see really, uh, you know, dramatic changes in sort of lung function, and also how genes are expressed. So when your genes get activated or turned turned down in response to the stress, so we we know that there's a lot of adaptation for lungs, and uh, that the perfusion, though, from what we can tell, 
we, we can't say for human, but we can say it looks like it definitely changes in, in mice when you're up in flight. And, you know, like three liters of fluid goes up into your upper body when you get into space. And so it's, that's why you get the sort of the puffy face when you first get up there. Yeah. You mean that fluid wow, that would normally that. be in your lower half of your body doesn't know to hang out there. So then it just goes elsewhere in your body. Is that, right. is that what you're saying? Wow. Yeah, because, you know, uh, you know, millions and millions of years of evolution has uh, gotten the body used to just being able to push back up and suddenly you don't have to. Uh, so it takes a little while for the body to adapt, but it's actually quite adaptable. Wait, is that why, wait, of- wait, is that why when you wake up, sometimes you have a puffy face? Because you're horizontal, and so the gravity doesn't know to go up or down in your body. But you, pe- it, people it, do wake up with puffy faces. It could be from drinking. Well, I was um, going to say. Could be, could be, I was going to say, Scott. Scott the Scott. There's a lot of reasons possible. But if you're on an angle, it can contribute. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, all I know now is that mice are the new red shirt Star Trek crew member. <laughs> they are. As soon as they touch down, they die. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here we go. Let's uh, let's move. Let's move on. This is Andrew Magri. I heard that people who go into space for months become taller by the time they come back to Earth. What are the limits to height uh, that you can gain if you were to stay in space? Love the show. I'd be nine uh, feet tall, I guess. Right? I felt, Cyan, I how taller. much taller were you when you came back? Uh, actually, right when you get back to Earth, you you shrink back down. Gravity takes over. But I felt taller on orbit, if that helps. <laughs> and, and, and Chris, what, what's the data on how much you lose? Game. Usually, well, it's one to two inches in flight. Actually, yes. Uh, so Scott Kelly, when he was up for a year, he got about two inches taller. Uh, but uh, as Dr. Proctor just mentioned, as soon as you get back to gravity, gravity takes it away from you. And so, Scott Kelly uh, is not tall to begin with. So yeah. if, if I remember, we had him on Star Talk. So yeah. uh, he was a short guy. So maybe he enjoyed those two inches if he, if he had yeah. Yeah. issues with it. <laughs> there was no way to keep him that way yeah. huh? unless you put him in a No, no, unless you stay in space or... <laughs> Yeah, or like some uh, implants, maybe, but we have that's not uh, flight approved okay. yet. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Give me another question, Chuck. All right, here we go. This is Nathan Mitchell, who says, "Hi, my current major is aerospace engineering. However, I'm considering swapping my focus to botany and horticulture. I'd love eventually to branch into the study of how we can seed planets and moons. What do you professionals think will be necessary before we can successfully send down spores and seeds to begin to populate other viable bodies in our universe with life-sustaining plants and bacteria?" Ooh. Wow. Let me ask Chris, because uh, Chris, you're 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 you studied bacteria on the skin and in the digestive tracts, presumably also of your crew. Uh, how hardy are bacteria? Can we just take a colony of them and drop it on Mars? And will they get along just fine? And will they come back and kill us all? <laughs> <laughs> the bacteria come back in their spaceship. <laughs> exactly. Drop me off on a desert planet, will you? I'll show you. <laughs> They'll mutate and come back. I mean, so they there are uh, microbes we know that can survive in the vacuum of space. And there, there's a big concern about if you bring something back from Mars. Like, for example, in 2032, we're supposed to get samples back uh, from Mars. We're going to look at them. And the planetary protection is a whole division of NASA that just thinks about this, of either forward contamination or, or reverse, where we bring something back. And we know that microbes uh, can survive in almost any nook and cranny of the Earth, um, including it, it past boiling water temperatures or really deep freezing, high pressure, high radiation. So... If we're going to find any life on Mars, it'd probably be microbial. And there are strains of bacillus that could probably survive the trip there and back. So, um, But there's people looking at this. We've published on this. NASA has a whole team that just swabs the spacecraft before they go and before they get sealed off and sent. So 
are keeping an eye on things. Okay. Yeah, so, so we just have to know whether bacteria will ever evolve to be able to build their own spaceships. This is what should worry us. Yes. Right, because they'll be or pissed off that we dropped back. them off on Mars. <laughs> but the, if a meteorite hits and come back, comes back with them, you know, they can hitch a ride that way. Oh. And I will say I did bring the first meteorite back to space oh. with me when I went up. So, yeah. Really? Wow. Wow. Didn't you disrupt right, that... the, the, the natural order of the universe by reversing <laughs> which way the, the meteorite went? Yeah. Yeah, it's a salmon meteorite, you know? <laughs> That's cool. All right. All right. Well, give me some more, Chuck. All right, here we go. Uh, this is Matthew Kelly. He says, hello, everybody. I'm a recent Patreon supporter. I don't know if that's actually, if this is actually related to the subject, but I'm going to throw it out here anyway because I can. I'm wondering, as space becomes more and more accessible to civilians, is there any change in the training required to support a rocket launch? If I remember correctly, astronauts feel a force of around three Gs during a launch. No civilians are trained to support that much force on themselves. No, wait a minute, Chris. Isn't three Gs what you get in any amusement park? In a fast uh, you, roller coaster, on some of the bigger rides, you can get up there. But uh, in, I mean, so you, you get a bit briefly though, but you'll get a lot more G's. You can get up to five or six G's even for some of the really larger rockets. It uh, actually, you know, but so and it's it lasts a lot longer. It's not five, you know, three or four seconds. It'll be for uh, several minutes. It'll have pretty high G forces as you go. So, up. Cyan, how, how many G forces did you experience going up? Or coming oh, between back. Three, three, between three and four, but it was more, I tell you, coming back was a lot different than going up because, um, you know, being on orbit, not having any G-load for three days, we when we started, hit, we hit the atmosphere, it was like, oh, oh, wait, what is this? As gravity started to take over and, and I was doing some pressure breathing by the end. Mm. Oh, wow. So what you're saying is your body got lazy. <laughs> it did. It got lazy quick. <laughs> it was what like, the hell is this thing? Is this what right. I grew up in? Oh, <laughs> and That's it, pretty cool. It was definitely noticeable. It, it happens fast. If you miss one day of working out for long missions, you can start to see more calcium show up in the urine. You can see, you know, the bones, uh, they go away quickly. So the uh, body is built to move and built to have uh, gravity. So if you take that away, it uh, starts to take, you know, just degrade a little bit. So if you're in space for long enough, you'll just be boneless by... <laughs> mm, like a chicken nugget. <laughs> oh, my God. Where have you been, space? You look delicious. It's an alien plot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big swimming pool full of barbecue. <laughs> All right, we got to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, more really cool questions about the inspiration for flight and what it means to us all when Star Talk returns. We're back, Star Talk, third and final segment of Cosmic Queries. We've been into space and back with Inspiration4, uh, one of the most recent SpaceX launches, and with civilians, only civilians, the highest civilians have ever gone, higher than the orbit level of the Hubble telescope. And they went into actual mm. orbit, not just into suborbit. So this was badass in every way. And H higher than me, listening <laughs> to Dark Side of the Moon back in college on a... <laughs> <laughs> okay, Chuck. 
Um, so, and we got Chris Mason, who's our biophysicist studying the crew, not only before they went up, but of course when they came back, as any good science mm -hmm. experiment needs. It has to have the sort of the, the baseline of what is so that you will know what could have possibly changed. And of course, Cyan Proctor. I, I love your career and what you've done, and it's just great to have you on the show. And we're, we're hammering you with questions from our Patreon members. So, Chuck, keep it coming. Uh, Jeff Johnson says, many astronauts have explained how profoundly their view of life and the world has changed uh, as they have seen Earth from space. Uh, you were high enough up to have this experience. What changed about you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I've got to say, what changed about me was this um, this thing, thinking about it from that that artist lens, and how when I when I was staring at our planet, I kept thinking how we're just individual like bristles of a brush, and and we don't think that we can make an impact. But if you take all of those bristles together, you can paint a beautiful portrait. And we are actually impacting our planet, and we are painting this portrait that's in motion and we get to determine what it's going to look like. Um, I, I, I re reference it to What Dreams May Come, the movie with Robin Williams and he, when he's running through this uh, this portrait and and being able to change it and swirl it and, and make it into what he wanted to imagine. Well, we as humans can do that with our planet and, and that with that comes responsibility. I am so glad that you're a painter because I forgot that you're a painter. And when you said each one of us is the individual brush, that's beautiful. Brush, that's just beautiful. I thought, no, I thought you meant a hairbrush. <laughs> and I was like, this is the dumbest <laughs> damn analogy I have ever heard in my life. How are you going to make a. <laughs> okay, Chuck, the rest of no, us are on this call paying attention. Is and that I knew she had a paintbrush. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, are you using a pick and not a brush? Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, like, there you go. Oh. There you go. Don't dump him out of this. Look at that. Diane, don't. Oh. No, he does not deserve that. <laughs> All right, here we so, go. Chris, in the old days, there was like survival training in the desert. They put you in a centrifuge until you vomited. You know, there are things that mm -hmm. they used to do to astronauts. And I don't think they do that to them anymore today. So what's what has changed? Uh, the, the training is not as uh, how close can I get you to death and see if you don't <laughs> die. It's much, much more now. Let's make sure you're safe and healthy. And, uh, <laughs> which which ha it has this utility. In the early days of the space program, we didn't know what happened. Oh, we didn't know. So you got to protect. You, you, they got to be they yeah. got to be ready for anything. Yes, wow. yes. But I will say that we did have centrifuge, and which was very helpful to understand the G-load. And, and we did fighter jet training, and we did uh, a Knowles-like experience where we hiked up to um, the top of Mount Rainier to do crew cohesion and bonding. But what has been different as the mission pilot is that I really became a systems engineer, where I had to understand all of the systems and how they integrate because the the um, Falcon, well, the rocket, but also the Dragon capsules autonomous. And so my job in the commanders is to look at, you know, making sure the flight computer stays on target with what it's supposed to do and know how moments talking to you and taking over, you know, 2001. Um, but also thinking about if you have a contingency or an emergency, how do you take care of that? What do you need to do? And so that's what I was trained on. Cyan, 
Did you barf? You can tell us. We won't tell. No, you. I didn't. But I don't I'll tell believe you. What. you. No, no, you lying. Better, I did, t- but I got a shot of Finnegan. I was like, better living through chemistry. Oh, I was not. Uh, be- <laughs> I'm not ashamed smart. to say that. I got on orbit. And I was like, ooh, okay. Um, and why, why even chance it? And then oh, I was yeah. like, hit me, hit me. <laughs> so I, I did a centrifuge once, and I, I lost my lunch, and so I. I was the inadequate stuff, <laughs> not the right stuff. <laughs> but what's great about it now is that you can you can take something or they you can take a shot and feel better. And I got one, and within a half hour, I was like, well, okay, I'm great. Some of my best friends are made of chemicals. So that's what we <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chuck, give me some more. All right, here we go. This is JMAX479 who says, hello, Dr. Mason. Del- hello, Dr. Proctor. Hello, Dr. Tyson. And Chuck, you occasionally make me laugh. <laughs> Um, <laughs> damn. Nailed I should it. read these. I should read these in advance of the show. He <laughs> says, uh, this is Jason. I'm a new member here. How do you have to curtail your food intake uh, for the mission? I suppose there's no Mexican buffet, right? <laughs> oh, no. I was eating pizza on orbit and BLTs, and it was three days. So we worked it out with SpaceX. They wanted us to be on the healthier side, and we we're like, mm, this is more like camping. We want food that, because food and mood go together. So we wanted food that wouldn't stress us out because you're already in a, a, a high stress environment. I'm betting um, no one brought kale with them. <laughs> kale chips. <laughs> kale chips. <laughs> that, that, that's a very say, omnivorous thing to say. With no soylent, we didn't bring that either. Soylent, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but there were meal cubes that they offered us, and we we rejected them. We were like, no, we're not taking meal cubes. And so because we were up there for such a short period of time, we had a cooler that with cold coffee, like frozen coffee that we could drink and tea. And that helped to keep our fresh food like veggies and um, pizza and, you know, like I said, BLT and bacon uh, preserved. For yeah, us. Cyan, if they let you take a duffel bag, then you're not eating Food cubes. There's no way. <laughs> I'm smuggling some cheeseburgers in that duffel bag. All that right? was one of the things that we talked about. Like, if we get to fill a duffel bag, we can put whatever we want in here. Uh, I'm putting some cheeseburgers in that puppy. All right, Chuck, give me some more. All right, here we go. Uh, this is Brian S. who says, I've heard a lot about the effects of human beings being away from Earth's atmosphere and gravity, but what can long-term effects of being absent from the Earth's magnetic field have on the human body? Yeah, Chris. Or does it? So, Chris, I I don't know that our bodies even thinks or cares or knows about the magnetic field at all, physiologically. Is that true? We don't do too much in sensitivity to whales potentially navigate with magnetic fields, but we don't yet have any of those abilities. So we... Uh, can basically you said yet. You're working on that. Yeah, huh? yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we got, there's a project in lab. Well, it should be done next. Uh, they're uh, just <laughs> implants. That's all. <laughs> that's right. So they, uh, you know, we're still in the protected basically Van Allen belt. So most of the risk of radiation is still we're still fairly protected in low Earth orbit. But the inspiration for mission went much higher than the space station, which is normally 400 kilometers, went almost out to 600 kilometers. And so there is an expectation that's a little bit more radiation the farther you get from Earth. And so that's something we're looking at right now in the data. And I don't know, Dr. Proctor, did it feel more radi- radiating out, out there? <laughs> did you glow when you were I was going to say, I came back with an aura. Well, uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, artists have always painted auras. This is a thing that's, that shows that up in true. artwork for yes. sure. 
Okay, so but otherwise, Chris, because the, I know just numerically the field is very, very weak. And so there's no reason why I think the field itself would matter, but the fact that it protects us from the, the harmful uh, charged particles from the sun, that's, a, that's, that's the interesting fact here. Exactly. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and then when you start to get the lunar missions that are planned and even Mars missions, you'll, you'll then you know, transit interplanetary space and you'll get a lot more radiation. So that's when it starts to really be a factor, we think. And that's one of the biggest questions that NASA has and that we have, just keeping an eye on the radiation risk. Right, and you're using radiation in the reference to particles, not uh, electromagnetic not energy of light, right? Yeah, the, the light's fine, it? but it's really just these high energy particles that zip through right, space, which are also called radiation. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a unfortunate defect in the term back when we were first learning about radioactivity. What it was, um, and they would, can have the similar effect on you, but they're actually two different things. One is made of light; the other is made of particles, and so uh, we're stuck with it. We got just a mm -hmm. couple of minutes left, Chuck. See, let's try to do a lightning round. So you guys have to answer the question in three seconds. Okay, All right, Chuck, go. All right, this is. Bill Wasale, who says, greeting Earthlings, how difficult was it to operate the touchscreens and read accurately during the powered ascent? Oh, I like that. Cyan, what was, what was happening there? Easy. Didn't even notice. Uh, the, the, I was surprised that the vibration level and stuff it was negligible. Okay. Cozy. Cozy. Okay. And so now I have fat fingers, which makes it difficult to navigate on my smartphone. So were those screens big enough so like a fat fingered person won't miss the right button? Absolutely. You'd be, you'd fit right in. Okay. <laughs> because if one button is a, a nice sailing forward and the other one is eject, I don't want to miss the button. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you're going to do okay. The nice right. big screens. Excellent. All right. Excellent. Good. All right. This is Jared Sorber who says, hello, given the current plethora of proposals for private space stations that are now out there, what are the additional capabilities or facilities that you might think would bring to the, that are not currently in the ISS? I like that. So Cyan, yeah. what, what do you need? What do you want up there? I want a, I want a shower. <laughs> I want that, I want that swimming pool that they had on uh, Interstellar. <laughs> but I do want to take, not lose gravity, but I, I want something like that. How, how about an espresso machine? I mean, stuff, you know. Oh, my goodness. I want the, the replicator thing that, you know, when I say Earl Grey uh, hot um, from Star Trek. Earl Grey yeah. hot. Yes, please. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, you know, now you just, you know, that's, that, a child of science fiction? <laughs> I, I want the warp drives. I don't, I don't think that's what he was asking you. <laughs> but if you could get all no, sci-fi on it, us. Okay, it, I want the it, replicator too. It's right? going to be um, more, I think, personal space um, is one of the things. The Dragon Capsule, we didn't have any. Uh, and so that's something to think about. You know, when you're talking about new internet, you know, bigger, different designed international space stations for for tourists and stuff where it's not research lab based. That means that some of the luxuries that you might want to have um, when it comes to bigger personal space, um, access to win big more windows um, and uh, and then with comfort areas where you can go and, and lounge and relax. I think those are things because you're moving to some extent away from that that focus on just pure research and- Interesting, so comfort, to, comfort. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This comfort. reminds me, not reminds me, I mean, I read, uh, the, you know, the first uh, airplane flights, the biplanes where you would pay to take a ride. Um, if you were around back then, you might've said, you know, I think 
you should enclose this cabin. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to wear goggles. Simple things, you know. Yeah. Like a room. A room with a view. Yeah, yeah. So, guys, we got to call it quits there. But this has been fun. It's been delightful just to see the dawn of an entire new industry, really, which is uh, tourists in space. And um, and I'm glad we, you know, this is Star Talk, so we do it from all angles. And, Chris, great to hear what you're doing with the data and more that you might be learning that you can possibly report back to us uh, in a future episode. And, and, and Cyan, uh, delighted to... To meet you and see what you're doing, and uh, I bet this won't be your last time in space. Is my is what I suspect. All right, guys. Again, thanks for thanks for being on the show, Chris, Cyan, Chuck. Always good to have you there as my always a trusty co-host. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson here, ending Cosmic Queries. As always, keep looking up. Neil, can I put you on the spot and say, uh, are we astronauts? <laughs> oh, next! I, I heard your view on the suborbital. So yeah, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to be like stick in the mud for everybody. But if I had to really draw a threshold, I'd say going into orbit. That's as you began this show saying accurately. It is completely different in the engineering of an object that goes into orbit than something that goes up above the Kármán line and falls back to Earth. And it's it's not just one is not just simply an extension of the other. It's a whole other thing. So, but I'm going. I'll stay with it. Carmen line, okay. But as an astrophysicist, send me somewhere, Moon, Mars, and beyond, and then I'm good to go.